the First Great Awakening, 1730 to 1755, and the Second Great Awakening, 1790 to 1840, were two religious movements that had a massive impact on the role of Christianity in America. The impact and results of both of these movements is still felt today, not only in our churches and understanding of religious practice, but also in the very fabric and makeup of American society in general. But how much of these movements can be credited to a supernatural move of God? And which things within these movements perhaps can be attributed to other things? What about the controversies that cause denominational splits and the rise of various cult groups? How do we seek to understand these things from an objective, unbiased, and nuanced perspective? Joined as always by my dear friend, co-host Gabriel Rutledge. Gabe, how are you doing tonight, man? Good, good. Uh, just still kind of reeling from the photo you just shared, the meme you just shared with me that is not going to be shared on hmm. this episode. But no, you'd have to upgrade the premium on Patreon to get the premium content of memes we send each other before we start recording. Would we share this meme on premium content <laughs> <laughs> if we did have a Patreon? With premium content, probably not. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, that would be reserved for for only special people that could handle it. So, hmm. but yeah, yeah, I'm doing well. I just realized I'm wearing a southeastern fire shirt. Wow. Hmm. Wow, appropriate for talks of revival. Look at mm. that. Yeah. Shabba. Holy Ghost fire. Yeah, you know. Um. So I got my undergrad from the southeastern fire school because they were pentecostal right so it's all about fire from on high and then i got my graduate degree from lee university which was also a pentecostal graduate school and they were the flames hmm. but you gotta be careful with that because very quickly they can turn into the flamers yeah which is not that's not associated with pentecostals that is associated with sassy flamboyant yeah, you don't want to be a flame, flaming flamer, flame. No, that goes to a fire. You could be a fiery, the flaming, a fiery fire person. And a, but being a flaming mm. anything is usually not a good thing. But for better or for worse. Well, if I remember correctly, so. the mascot at Southeastern was a uh, a real life uh, Dalmatian dog, and I it think tra- tragically, yeah, his name was Fuego, right? Yeah, but uh, no, we got to back up because we started Southeastern. It was Southeastern College, and it mm-hmm. was it was kind of like the glorified thirteenth grade youth camp. And then probably our sophomore year, they upgraded to Southeastern University, and they changed yeah. our mascot because before we were the Crusaders, which for whatever reason I don't know why people got their panties in a wad like, oh, you guys gonna go kill some Turks? And we were like, no, we're just the Crusaders. But um, wow. I guess Fuego the Fire Dog was a little bit more. And we had a contest. You remember that? We had a contest to change our mascot? No. No. And I don't remember that. We submitted really but stupid I, I believe you. suggestions. Really stupid suggestions like the Southeastern Penguins and the Southeastern mm. Hurricanes because it was like a really 
really busy hurricane season that year. Well, didn't didn't Fuego the Dalmatian that became our mascot? Didn't it was weren't its owners and guardians uh, out running with it around a lake, and it got hit by a car and run over? <laughs> do I might do I remember correctly? <laughs> Never heard that. That's terrible. I think it just suddenly disappeared one day, and no one really explained to me why. And then I heard through the rumor mill that I got hit by a car. You know what it was? It's probably those people from Florida Southern right across the lake. They probably mm-hmm. came and murdered him. Our, mm-hmm. our our rivals, the Florida Southern. I don't even know what their mascot was. Yeah, they were the Methodists. They were the moccasins. The, were the <laughs> Florida Southern moccasins. Yeah. Oh, yeah. good times. Good times. Yeah. Man. Well, I just made a a book purchase today on Amazon. Um, Did you? And it inspired me. Yeah, I haven't even read mm. the first page of it yet, and I'm already I'm working on building a farm table for our our dining room uh, to mm. replace our 15 year old table. Um, but it's inspired me to do masculine things <laughs> in a biblical way. And the title of the yeah. book I bought, uh, let me look it up one more time. You might be interested in it. It's uh, called okay, "Committed to it. ba- uh, Committed Committed to uh, Committed to <laughs> Biblical Masculinity." By oh, that sounds terrible. see who the author is. Joshua already. Joshua Brooker, which is Broker? weird because that's your name. That Broker? Broker Booker Booker T. Washington. So Yeah, so I, I ran across this book written by written by you, um, called <laughs> Biblical Committed to Biblical Masculinity. And I found it's it on Amazon. Committed biblical masculinity, you jerk. Committed, committed, <laughs> committed biblical, committed biblical masculinity. You've, committed, you've you've been committed to a, a sane asylum because you've committed been too biblically masculine. colon biblical yes. masculinity. <laughs> published colon August second, two thousand twenty-two. Yeah, yes. committed colon. <laughs> um, written by Josh Brooker and Corey Trimble. So, pick yours yeah. up at Amazon today and well, thanks for uh, the... get it Amazon Prime it's got 5 out of 5 stars and uh let me see someone left a review for you do you want me to read it think, on the show well i think the only person that left the review was Corey who wrote the forward <laughs> so like oh okay okay i didn't really count cuz he he already said in the forward like hey read this book so um okay yeah well when i get it but, i'll read it Please leave a review, and, and then I'll leave honest. you an honest. I'll leave you an honest review. Yeah, but you can buy this book. Um, I'm not going to recommend it yet because I haven't read it. Mm, but um, that's good. my yeah. hopes, my hopes are moderately high for it. Yeah. Well, thank you, thank you for the the vote of confidence there. But in all seriousness, yeah. thanks for buying. How long did it take you? you? Absolutely. How long did it take you to write this book? So I started in January, and from January to about. April, I was working on it. Um, mm. But honestly, man, I think that like there had been a lot of conversations and interactions I've had with dudes over the years that prepared me for it. So I, I kind of, I think a lot of the stuff that got to put on my heart had kind of been brewing for a while. So I think writing it wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be, you know? Yeah. But I think the part of it Very that's cool. the part of it that's most challenging, like writing any book, is not after you've written it. It's after you have to edit it and format it and proofread it and mm-hmm. edit it again and format it and proofread it. But um, yeah. 
we had a fantastic team working on it. Um, big shout out to Jonathan Checa and his wife, Emily Checa and Aaron Belcher and Billy Sons. So <clears throat> all these people that were involved in this book getting published, they did a ton of work on it. So, yeah. So anyway, I'm really, really grateful for those guys. And I'm, I hope this group, this, uh, this book is helpful to people that grab it. So thanks for the plug yeah. there. Buddy. So you hired the, you hired the checkers as the grammar checkers. The, <laughs> that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, but sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm yeah. excited to get well, it. Let me, and, let me know uh, what you think. I hope you, that it, when you get it. So. Yeah. I think you're I in it. I'm, I have, I have a section about you and Ryan that's in it. You guys are, uh, you guys are mentioned mm. in a shout out. So about yeah. non-manly well, men. That's that you don't worth buying it. it. The whole book, the whole book could just be utter trash, but I mean, like if Ryan and I are in it, then it's worth <laughs> every penny. But... Uh, yes. Well, so let's talk about revival for a second. Shall we? Yeah. As, just for a second. Just for a second, just for the next hour or so. Um, we Episode were talking 62. We... Yeah, it is, man. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. 62. No, you're good. 62 hours of this. So I don't even know what to say <laughs> about that. If you've, if you've listened to all 62 hours, man, I just feel like I just owe you a giant apology. But anyway, thank you to our faithful listeners who have stuck with <laughs> us to it. But uh, Gabe and I were talking right before we hopped on the podcast. Gabe, I believe your undergraduate degree is in history. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is. And so in most American history classes, you will hear about at least the first Great Awakening, sometimes the second Great Awakening, too. Um, Gabe, what do you remember from history class about these movements? Mm. Um, that they were, well, movements based on the colonies and the colonial area of our history. And by and large, uh, they were... If I remember correctly, they started off Anglican and then became, mm -hmm. I could be botching this, but then started, but then moved into a more, uh, I guess, like kind of Baptist Armenian realm. Am I remembering correctly? Well, yeah, the second Great Awakening like, was, but yeah, you're, you're right in okay. that. The first Great Awakening was Anglican because it was still considered England at the time. And that was the mm -hmm. Church of England. Mm -hmm. But it's really interesting how the last episode we talked about moves of God in like a biblical mm -hmm. precedent, you know, for moves of God, where God shows up and he moves in power, people return to the Lord, people's hearts are changed, people get converted. And then we're going to walk through and just kind of see how that's fleshed itself out practically in church history. And it's really fascinating to see before America began as a nation, one of these amazing moves of God that happened in the colonies, and um, a lot of different layers to that, a lot of different aspects of it. And then the Second Great Awakening was a little bit later. This was after the American Revolution. And um, one could say, yes, many people came to Christ, but there were controversies. Uh, the Second Great Awakening was far more controversial than the first, but it's pretty interesting just to see the controversies in both, because that's something we said in the first episode of this series, is that revivals tend to be messy. And these two are no mm -hmm. different. So, but it's fascinating to see mm. the 
cultural effects that both of them had even on us today as Christians in the U.S., if you're listening to this from the U.S. so Cool. Shall we? Shall we dive in? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. So the first Great Awakening is a movement of religious fervor and what is considered a revival that occurred in 1730 to around 1755 in the 13 colonies and also in Britain. And so um, if you're familiar with early U.S. history, you'll know that a lot of the colonies started as Puritan colonies. So the Church of England was starting to grow corrupted. There were two main groups, the Separatists and the Puritans. And the Puritans felt like they needed to stay within the Church of England and purify it and basically remove the corruption through being devout and being committed. And so that's why they came over here, many of them, um, to kind of begin a new chapter in their spiritual life. So if you're familiar (coughs) with the uh, Salem Witch Trials and the uh, Plymouth Colony, both of those would be considered like Plymouth um, and Salem would both be considered Puritan colonies. Um, And so, man, religious life was very, 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 very important um, in those um, colonies. And uh, sometimes excessive. So are you familiar with much of the Salem Witch Trials, Gabe? Like what happened with that? Yeah, I was actually listening to it, like a short history um, podcast on that, how it was kind of like this, um, this like kind of like misinformation, misinformation campaign where um, a lot of people were mm-hmm. using it as like a, a personal vendetta uh, against, against women or um, yeah. you know, there's a lot of false accusations obviously going around, but yeah, that was intense. It, it's important to remember too, that the colonies were living under what we would now call a theocratic like form of government where the Anglican church sure, saw itself yeah. as the arbitrator of the law and the Anglican church, um, you know, obviously broke away much earlier, earlier from the Catholic church, but, um, they were like the, uh, it was, it was a theocratic, it saw itself as a theocratic in- monarch essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where like, that's where the idea of issuing marriage licenses came from. And that's how, why states even to this day issue marriage licenses, because, um, that, that all started back in the the time of the colonies with the Anglican church. That's fascinating. Yeah. So that would have been like late 17th century. So late 1600s were really the height of kind of the Puritan world in the colonies. And, um, so as the colonies grew and agricultural grew um, and you had a lot of people making a lot of money from cotton and from tobacco and from um, just trading, what started to happen is a lot of colonial Christians <clears throat> realized it was advantageous for them to be involved in the church, um, to be active members in the Anglican church. And so what started to happen is that a lot of them were Christian by name only. Um, we use the term creedalism as if to say like, Hey, you would identify yourself as a member of the Anglican church. You would identify yourself as somebody who, you know, says, Oh yeah, I'm in church every Sunday. I was confirmed. I was baptized Anglican. But for the most part, like religion didn't play a big part in someone's personal life. And so there was a pastor in Northampton, um, I believe Massachusetts. I could be wrong in that. Somebody, or New, is it New Hampshire? Maybe it's New Hampshire. Northampton, New Hampshire, I think so. I'm not as familiar with my New England geography. But uh, his name was Jonathan Edwards, 
And this deeply, deeply, deeply bothered him. It bothered him that so many people in the colonies had so much of a religious heritage, and yet in his mind he was worried that for the most part they were unconverted. And so in 1734, there were two unexpected deaths in the community there in Northampton. And um, they were young people. And so Jonathan Edwards preached their sermons, uh, their, their funeral sermons, and he preached about the reality of hell. And he preached about the reality of God's judgment. And he preached about the shortness of human life. And what happened is there was a town-wide revival in the city of Northampton. Um, people began to gather in small groups in their homes to pray, to sing, to study their Bibles. Um, Jonathan Edwards actually would write in a, a memoir later. Um, it's got a really long title. It's, I think the full title is <laughs> The Faithful Narrative of the Surprising sovereign work of god in northampton it's like super long i Mm. guess back in those days they did book titles they're like here's everything the book's about right (laughs) uh (laughs) here's what he wrote he said all talk other than spiritual and eternal things was soon thrown by all the conversation in all companies and upon all occasions was upon these things only unless so much was necessary for people carrying on their ordinary secular business other discourse than the things of religion would scarcely be tolerated in any company the temptation now seemed to neglect worldly affairs too much and to spend too much time in the immediate exercise of religion. So basically what happened was um, everybody in the town just got really, really, really into Jesus. So much so that they kind of hmm. stopped caring about like working their jobs. Um, and that <laughs> revival spread from Northampton, New Hampshire, and went to surrounding towns to where just inexplicably people were passionate about the Lord. People were truly being converted. These are people who had grown up their whole life in church. And um, yeah, it was, it was really, really amazing. So this happened for a few years. And after a few years, this revival began to die down. People slid back in their sin. And Edwards called this Satan's great counterattack, this kind of religious apathy Hmm. that set in. Um, Here's, here's the full title. I didn't have it till the second page of our show notes, uh, a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God and the conversion of many hundred souls in Northampton and the neighboring towns and villages of New Hampshire and New England. <laughs> the full Goodness, title. that is... That's quite the title, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so Jonathan Edwards was a incredible pastor and theologian, writer, um, brilliant man. And he labored for years and years and years without seeing very many conversions. And then inexplicably, through two funerals, hundreds of people, which in a small town in New England, that would have been a huge deal, um, came to know the mm-hmm. Lord. And just that revival wow. of conversions just exploded um, to neighboring towns. So then it kind of died down. And do we, so, let me ask you a question real quick. Do we, do we have any of his like tra- transcripts of these sermons that he, he gave? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, we'll talk about his most mm. famous sermon here in a minute, but um, he was a brilliant writer. Um, he was known as kind of the theologian of the Great Awakening. The most famous preacher of the Great Awakening was a guy named George Whitfield. But Jonathan mm. Edwards' sermons were, I mean, they, they, they read like philosophical treatises. 
So he'll present a point and kind of establish that point through scripture and then philosophy. And then he'll build upon that point with another one. And then he'll build upon that point with another one until the conclusion of it is just incredible. Um, so as a matter of fact, as an English major and as an English teacher, I had to read quite a bit of his sermons. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So we'll so talk do about think, the most famous uh, one. Do you think he like pre-wrote a lot of his sermons and just simply read them? Or That's exactly what he, he did. Yep. Oh, okay. Interesting. He manuscripted I everything. If, I wonder if, yeah. I wonder if one can buy all these transcripted sermons in a book form. Do you know? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. I've, yeah. Uh, I've Actually, got a copy of, yeah, I've got a copy of a surprising work of God. Um, yeah, a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God. I will say though, it was written in the 1730s. So it's a bit, Difficult to read oh, yeah. if you're used to modern English. Yeah. But yeah, you can read his sermons. You can read his memoirs. You can also read his, he was very famous for his New Year's resolutions. So every year hmm. he would write resolutions that he would resolve that this year I'm going to, you know, not spend time thinking in idle thoughts, but really, you know, training my mind to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And, um, for him, what really was important, he wrote a lot about religious affections. So for him, it was a heart that has been truly captured by the love of Christ is a heart that has their affections stirred and warmed to the things of Christ. And so you can imagine in a culture where creedalism kind of was the rule of the day, Anglicanism was very staunch, very stoic, very, you know, straight down the, the barrel by the book, Edwards came along and was very much like, no, no, if, if Jesus has taken a hold of your heart, then you fall in love with him. And he, he stirs up mm. your emotions. And Edwards would write about going on these walks in the countryside of New England and spending time with the Lord and just worshiping and singing and praying. Um, it's kind of ironic. He was a cessationist, but mm. he would write about his moments of prayer where he would for all intents and purpose, fall into, I would say, Holy Spirit inspired ecstasy. <laughs> but he was yeah, a, interesting. He's interesting. a cessationist, and we'll we'll talk about why that's a bit ironic as we talk about other things. But yeah, that was Jonathan Edwards, and he was a phenomenal hmm. theologian. But um, so what would then happen after that first wave of the Great Awakening that was kind of kicked off by Jonathan Edwards and Northampton died down? is traveling preachers would come and preach in the open air to huge crowds from people from all over the place, multiple denominations. Um, and when I say multiple denominations, really Presbyterian, Baptist, and Anglican. That's pretty much all you had. The Methodists were still considered a sect of Anglicanism at this point. Methodism didn't really start kicking off until um, a little bit later. It was kind of getting off the ground. But the most famous preacher of the Great Awakening was a guy by the name of George Whitfield. So, funny story. I grew up in, you can see if you're watching on YouTube, Whitfield County. Here's an old license plate from Whitfield County. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But what's funny <laughs> is um, it was named after George Whitfield because I guess he preached in Georgia once upon a time. But whoever mm -hmm. named Whitfield County misspelled Whitfield. So it doesn't have an E on the end of W-H-I-T. Interesting. But anyway. Yeah, so hmm. I'm from Whitfield County, Georgia, named after George Whitfield, but we misspelled it because we're from Georgia and we're very smart. Yeah. But <laughs> anyway. So um, 
He was not a very handsome man. He was cross-eyed. <laughs> it's just a fun fact about hmm. him. But he had a powerful, powerful, booming voice. He was exceptionally theatrical. He was passionate. He was filled with the Spirit of God. And as he would preach, this is before you had microphones and amplification, he would preach to crowds as big as 100,000. Um, he was close friends with none other than Benjamin Franklin, who was not a believer. Benjamin Franklin was a deist. But Benjamin Franklin was a huge fan of Whitfield because he was very curious about everywhere Whitfield went, people got converted. Mm. People began to wail, cry, shake, tremble, fall down, and cry out in a loud voice as he would preach at these open-air meetings. Mm. And Benjamin Franklin was fascinated by that, which is funny because Benjamin Franklin never became a believer. But he would come to hear George Whitfield preach, and he would see how far away he could stand from the platform and still hear his voice clearly. And he reported once wow. standing over 300, 400 yards away and still being able to hear him very clearly. Um, wow. Yeah, so and another thing, too, like open-air evangelism worked really well back then because this was mm. before TV was invented, right? <laughs> you yeah. couldn't go down to the you know, soccer stadium and go watch a soccer match. This was like, this was the thing, right? What were yeah, they guys talking about, about? I was about to say, like, or about to ask, do you think uh, a very charismatic speaker could could draw crowds like this today. I mean, you got to think like in the 1700s, these people were, were doing good. Like they were very entertained with like a newspaper that they got once a week, you know, like that was their, right, right, their right. connection to the outside world beyond their little homestead. And it's like, if this traveling preacher came through town, it's like, well, of course we're going to go see this, you know, mm -hmm. fairly famous individual come speak in our town square. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. But I don't know. I don't know that we could, we could form con like a con, convocation of people like that these days with as much like entertainment and stuff. I wonder what that would look like. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think it was kind of twofold. I think number one, he was a very charismatic and dynamic personality. So Benjamin Franklin said it was like watching a theater actor, um, mm. watching him preach. Of course, Benjamin Franklin was not a Christian, but it was undeniable that there would be supernatural manifestations that would break out every time he preached that were un mm. unexplainable. You know, people falling, crying, shaking, trembling, falling to their knees, crying out, what must I do to be saved? Um, and, and I think that was a, that was part of the pool as well. It's kind of just like, man, you had a hunger to mm. go see this guy preach because you never knew what was going to happen. Yeah. So Jonathan Edwards heard about George Whitfield and wrote for him to come to Northampton which was the church that Edwards pastored to come preach. And so Whitfield preached four times in Edwards church over a weekend and uh, another revival, another wave of revival came as the result consuming Northampton and the surrounding towns. And so then Edwards kind of picked up on that, you know, George Whitfield kind of <clears throat> kickstarted another wave of the awakening, if you will. And so, um, then Edwards started preaching not just at his church, but traveling to several surrounding towns to help local pastors. And he preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
And this is one that is read in American literature textbooks even to this day. Hmm. Because of its impact, um, because of its use of imagery, and um, basically the premise of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is that we are under the wrath of God even now that the only thing that is keeping us away from the fires of hell is the good pleasure of God. Hmm. Like we should already be in hell right now because of our sin and our rebellion against God. But like a, a spider web, that's one of the imagery he uses. So like a spider hangs by a tiny thread above a fire. God is in his mercy for some reason, keeping sinners alive in this life. And the reason is so he can offer them his own mercy and grace. And so Edwards preached this in Northampton, and he preached it again in another church in Enfield, Connecticut. And as he was preaching it, and again, we don't really know what his preaching voice sounded like, but from all accounts, he was not the dynamic speaker that Whitfield was. He manuscripted his sermons. Mm -hmm. He read them out, you know, as he's reading from a manuscript. But as he's reading it, people begin to tremble. Begin to shake, begin to cry, they begin to wail, they begin to call out, interrupting him as he's preaching, What must I do to be saved? And hundreds of people from this one sermon come to repentance and are converted because of one sermon. Hmm. What, what, as a pastor, wouldn't you like to preach a sermon like that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like, you think about. Um, this day and age, like what would it take to draw that sort of crowd and then have that sort of reaction? And I think it would take a, so, something that is undeniably like a miracle. Like, so you have yeah. like this big crowd, like you, you had, I think it was, a, it was several years back. There wasn't there a Bible that it was like, was like oozing oil or something. Wasn't there like a from my hometown, thing going around on social hometown, media? Dalton, Georgia. Yeah. From Dalton, Georgia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like, I mean, here I am like six hours away, but that that was, I, I heard about that, but that was probably mm -hmm. um, broadcast around the world. Like people were sharing that and that was going on around the world. But that was just like a Bible that was supposedly like has oil dripping out of it, like continuously. And which was know, later found to be a fraud, if, by the way. Mm, but if let's say that that was real and okay. but let's 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 amplify it even more like someone's like someone who's been like uh, crippled all their life is suddenly it's undeniably verifiable. They they're given the ability to like miraculously healed and, and they can get up and begin to dance and walk around and stuff. Like if that happens night one, imagine the size of the crowd on night two. Sure. Absolutely. And how much that would stir people to see and to verify and to witness that. I think that's mm -hmm. probably what it would have, what it would take. Um, yeah. And maybe that's some of the encounters they were having with some of these, um, I don't, I don't want to say manifestations. That sounds negative, but like, um, like you know, what I'm saying the the, the wailing and yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, yeah. cries yeah. of repentance and stuff. Maybe they, that just stirred people to the point where like something's sure. different here. So it it obviously because there was such a, I mean, there was thousands upon thousands of conversions, right? But where Whitfield preached and where Edwards preached. And wherever the awakening went, there were unexplainable responses to the preaching, to the prayers, to the worship. 
People would wail, people would weep, people would shake, people would convulse, people would fall down as if they were dead, people would laugh, people would tremble. Um, and obviously there's a ton of controversy, right? I mean, the whole landscape of the colonies is Anglican. If you've ever been into an Anglican church, I mean, everybody's face looks like they just sucked on a lemon, right? I mean, it's not, not really, I mean, that's, if you're listening to this and you're Anglican, I have a, several Anglican friends. I love you guys. Thank you for listening, especially my friend Austin Cagle. Thank you, Austin, for all the work you do as an Anglican. That was a main Anglican joke. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, it's not known for being a charismatic denomination, right? Especially not in the 1700s. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very liturgical. Yeah. Yes, yes. So there's a lot of controversy, and Edwards kind of had to play cleanup a little bit to try to figure out what to do about it because there's a lot of people going, this is all fake. This is all, you know, people that are just showing off or this is the devil, right? So Edwards would write about distinguishing between true religious affections and what he called false enthusiasm. And he said that within the movement, there would be people who truly were having their affection stirred because of the presence of God. But at the same time, right among them, like wheat and tares, there was false enthusiasm. There were Satan's counterfeit to genuine works of God. Mm. And that really, there was no way to know which was which, because in the same field, both wheat and tares grow, right? So that obviously Mm. caused a Mm. lot of controversy because people didn't know what to do with it, you know? And like I said, um, Edwards was a cessationist. He did not believe in the continuation of the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. And yet everywhere he preached, people were having these (laughs) encounters with the Holy Spirit. He didn't know how to explain. (laughs) There's one account of after, uh, you know, service in their church, people are laying on the altar of of the church, like what we would say in Pentecostal circles, they were slain in the Spirit. And they're just laying there, hmm. and none of the elders of the church or Edwards knew what to do, and so they were just like, "Well, we got to go home, so we'll just leave them in the church and lock the door." And came back the next morning, and they were still up at the front of the altar, laying there, praying, and still slain in the spirit. Hmm. Wow. And so this caused a ton of controversy, right? What do you do with this? Um, a lot of the controversy was the accusation of the clergy and the clergy class being an Anglican minister was like being an attorney or being a doctor or being like the mayor of a town. It was a big deal. Right. And so because it was socially advantageous and a pretty good gig, some of those guys didn't stir the pot too much. They didn't preach repentance. They didn't preach conversion. They didn't preach the Bible. They just kind of kept everybody happy, right? And George mm-hmm. Whitfield would pick up on that, and he would come to town, and he would call clergy out by name and straight up say, these guys wow. are jokers and frauds, and they're unconverted. Wow. One can imagine how this That's would intense. cause <laughs> quite a stir, right? <laughs> yeah, be like yeah. A, you know, a revival preacher comes to Dothan, Alabama, and starts listing the names of the pastors there. Talking about this guy's not saved, this guy's not saved, this guy's not saved, you know. So that caused quite a stir. 
It almost sounds like a former president's Twitter account. <laughs> Just going on a yeah, tirade. What, yeah, what makes it even funnier is... I don't know why it makes it funny to me because George Whitfield was a, a man of God. God used him in a mighty way, but he was yeah. cross-eyed. So any portrait you look up of Whitfield, he's like this powerful, majestic, booming voice and he's cross-eyed. So are you going to look one up? Really? I'm going to look it up yeah. now. Yeah, you can go on while I... Okay. So all this controversy kind of divided the church in the colonies between the old lights and the new lights. There were preachers and followers who adopted the new ideas that the Great Awakening brought forth, they were called the New Lights, and those who kind of said, that's goofy, that's weird, we don't need conversion, we don't need the Holy Spirit, we don't need religious affections, they were dubbed the Old Lights. So kind of that created a lot of controversy in that. Did you, did you find a picture of him? I did, yeah, poor guy. Yeah, that's, um, can, I mean... Yeah, share your screen. The, so the artist... You can see the picture. Okay. Can you share your screen? Let me figure out how to do this real fast. Yeah, let me figure okay. out how to do it. Share screen. <clears throat> A uh, Chrome tab. Okay, yeah, I just did a Google. You just walk. Google you're search just walking there. Everybody. Yeah, that's uh, not watching on YouTube. Through. <laughs> okay, so if you're watching on YouTube, I know, I know. Is... Yeah, the artists <laughs> were not they. They were not holding back on this. I mean, like, no, this poor guy. No, as my as my dad happen. would say, he can stand on Wednesday and see both Sundays. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's intense. Yeah, so he was. Um, exceptionally instrumental so much so that after he died um i believe it was soldiers in the american revolution dug up his bones and tried to use his bones as a talisman the ossuary that his bones were in as a talisman so oh gosh of course whitfield whitfield would have you know rolled over in his grave at the thought of people doing that but that just shows you how big of a role he played in the colonies yeah um very, 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 very respected. He was Billy Graham before there was Billy Graham. Mm. Um, so the theology of the Great Awakening was the emphasis was mainly on the necessity of conversion. That you must be born again. Mm. That it's not enough to just get confirmed and baptized into a church and have church membership. You've got to have a moment of faith and trust in Jesus and surrendering to him as Lord of your life. Um, well, and this would have been a big deal in the Anglican church because they, from what, from what I understand, they practice like infant baptism and stuff. And so mm -hmm. you're, you're like, uh, you're brought in and you're in a sense cut into the covenant, so to speak, in the Anglican church and into the faith as an infant. So it's not like a conscious decision that you made a personal decision that you made right. for yourself. It's something that was, was done for you. So this mm -hmm. is, I think for, for evangelical Christians living in 2022, it's something we kind of assume, oh yeah, you know, to be a Christian, you have to make a, you make, you make a profession of faith, you know, and, right. and when you're able to fully kind of conceive the, the weight of that. But uh, back then that would have been probably a, a pretty foreign concept at the time. Absolutely. Well, and, and most historians point to the Great Awakening as really the one of the roots of evangelicalism. Mm. So like this idea that you have to be born again, it has to be a conscious decision of the will to put your hope and trust in Christ. But the something that I think you've got to keep in mind, it was mainly Calvinistic in its soteriology. 
So soteriology is the study of salvation. So Whitfield was Calvinistic. Edwards was Calvinistic. Many in the Anglican Church were Calvinistic in that they believed that God chose and predestined those who would be saved. So the emphasis on conversion, they didn't see that as a contradiction of Calvinism. They saw that as an evidence of it. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Mm. So you having your religious affections astirred and awakened to the truth of who Jesus was, was a sign that, man, God was pursuing you, God had chosen you, God had set his love on you. Um, And so there was a big emphasis on, man, God just like wrecking you. Like this was before the practice of altar calls and things like that. We'll, we'll talk about that here in a moment when that started, that was not till much, much later, but it was very much like, you know, to get right with God was recognizing that he was pursuing you and surrendering yourself to him. Even as you recognize that he was the one that had set his love on you and was pursuing you through Christ. Hmm. So it's pretty interesting. So the effects of it were obviously, this is the, the roots of evangelicalism. So emphasis on heart change, genuine conversion, regeneration, emphasis on a personal relationship with God, emphasis on the scriptures for spiritual formation, um, common unity within the church around the spirit's transformation of the heart and godly affections. Like there had to be fruit in the life for someone to genuinely be converted. And that was something that both Edwards and Mm. Whitfield were big on. Like if there's no fruit, there's no conversion. But something else that really happened um, beyond just kind of spiritual is that it really led to the breaking down of the hierarchy of society. Um, lay people begin to think for themselves. So mm. to say that you must be born again, to have open air preaching, to break out of the mold of what an Anglican church service was supposed to look like in the colonies through having people cry and weep and wail and cry out, what must I do to be saved? That challenged the normative structures of the time, right? Mm, And so you saw people starting to kind of think for themselves and saying, instead of us looking to these Anglican clerics for what we're supposed to think about God, we're experiencing God ourselves. This hierarchy, this this group think like we don't need that. We need to have a personal experience with God and the Spirit and conversion and regeneration. And so this led to people challenging the authority of the king, the authority of the crown, the authority of um, Britain and King George. And most historians point to this being a leading factor in changing the mindset in the colonies to lead them to the American revolution. Hmm. So it's kind of like a wave of like independence in your faith, so to speak, like you're not, from what I understand, like in, in the Anglican church, uh, it's modeled. I can't, I can't really speak about modern Anglican church, but I know probably at that time it was kind of modeled after Catholicism. And it's pretty similar. The, yeah. The, the, yeah, the issuing of of the sacraments was reliant upon an ordained priest to be able to do that. And your salvation was kind of reliant upon the taking of the sacrament on a regular basis. So if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, and I mean if there's any Anglicans listening, especially if you're well versed in the his, history of 
Anglican Church, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. that that mindset of like you are reliant upon your local Anglican priest was was probably well entrenched in the average colonial mind at that time. So sure. to to say basically, okay, your salvation is on you and you alone, and it's a personal relationship between you and God. I would I would you know it's it, we have to remember to put ourselves back into the the mental context of these people at that time. Sure, and what it would have been like to hear some of these concepts. Yeah, and like so much of American Christianity is very focused on your own personal relationship with God. I would say probably to a mm-hmm. fault at this point. But where that got started was probably we can trace it all the way back to this move of the Spirit, the First Great Awakening, right? Mm. Now, mm. in every move of God, there's always human instruments, and where human instruments are involved, there's messiness and there's controversy. So mm. probably not a good habit or practice to get into to call out those ministers in your town that you think are unconverted from a public podium. Probably wouldn't <laughs> recommend that, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, so what do you make of some of those controversies? How do you think that still maybe is uh, has affected us as Americans in our exercise of the faith? Well, I think uh, we mentioned in the first episode last time about John the Baptist and kind of the essence of revival in the New Testament and how on the banks of the Jordan, there were a group of kind of like religious police, you know, that were watching and observing and critiquing. And it's easy to find yourself in their shoes and to be one of those people and to be looking at this religious movement and say, ah, they had this wrong and that wrong. And, you know, I want to be ever mindful of that and not fall into that because I think even, and I kind of mentioned this last time, it's like even some of the the sketchiest and most uh, suspicious of religious and revival movements, especially in the modern era, I think good has spun out of that. Um, But yeah, so there's, I think anytime you get more than one human being together, there's going to be controversy and much more so when it's themed around uh, faith. <laughs> there's, there's a potential sure. for controversy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and like one of the things we'll see, especially as we get into others, uh, other revival movements, is that like God shows up, it, it would seem. There's a move of the Spirit, it would seem. But then the people there have to figure out how to pastor it. What do you do with it, Right. Mm-hmm. How do you coach mm-hmm. people through that? Like the gospel just got preached and inexplicably half the people in the congregation started to tremble, shake, cry, wail. And people are going, holy cow, I don't know what to do with this. And then hundreds of people get saved. And then they show up to your church office on a Monday and say, pastor, what did that, what does that mean? <laughs> does that mean now every time we go to <laughs> yeah. church, we've got to shake and cry and wail. And if we don't, we don't feel God. Like, what does that mean? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So like pastoring it and making mm-hmm. sense of it. And then also like coaching people through, okay, there's probably a lot of fake going on. Not everybody crying, shaking, wailing, trembling, falling down is really responding to God. Maybe they're just doing that because they think they're supposed to. You know, you're not always going to do that right because that's those are pretty uncharted. I've never had to deal with that in my um, pastorate to this point. So. <laughs> 
So that's the first Great Awakening, and that ended in 1740, around seven, well, I'm, I'm sorry, much later, 1755, which was a good 20 years before mm. the American Revolution. So the American Revolution comes in the 1770s. America becomes a independent nation. But it is a different nation than it was before. <coughs> um, obviously, it's no longer colonies, right? It's one nation. Um, they have a lot of work to do to rebuild after the war. Uh, we think inflation is bad now. Inflation in the months following the American Revolution was as bad as a 30% increase in one month. So, um, yeah, that was, that was bad. That was hard on this new nation. Um, so there was also a lot of frontier expansion. If you look at most of what was happening in the first Great Awakening, it was mainly focused in the New England area. Uh, it would sometimes go to the southern colonies. I mentioned in Georgia, George Whitfield ventured there a few times. But what started happening as America became a nation, in around 1790, people started moving out of the East Coast, original 13 colonies, into what was called the land beyond the Sabbath, into the frontier of Tennessee, of Kentucky, and what was the Ohio River Valley. And so they would settle these different forts. In Indian country, many of them, this is where you had guys like Daniel Boone and uh, these people who would basically go off in the frontier and, hey, we're going to take our family and we're going to, you know, blaze a trail and figure out how to live out here, right? And so, obviously, what was not on their minds as they moved to the frontier was church membership. So, in this new nation, in 1790, which was, a, you know, some... Let's see, 30 years after the first Great Awakening, 35 years after the first Great Awakening, church membership in this new nation had fallen to only about 5%, and in some places about 10%. So 90% of the people in this new nation had really stopped going to church or belonging to a church because they were just so preoccupied with other things at this point. Hmm. So there's really three ways to understand the second Great Awakening. It's kind of hard to point to like one particular figure, kind of like a Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield. We'll, we'll talk about some of the figures in it, but the three waves of revival you see in the Second Great Awakening. The first is in New England in the late 1700s. In 1795, Timothy Dwight, who was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, becomes president of Yale University. So Yale University was becoming increasingly more liberal. Many students were embracing Enlightenment thought, particularly they were becoming deists. So deists believed that God created the world and didn't really have any intervention with the world. And so a lot of people at Yale were becoming deists, and that was concerning because Yale was originally a divinity school. And so if everybody in your divinity school becomes French enlightenment liberals and deists then man the the religious 
climate of this new nation is going to be affected drastically. So Timothy Dwight, Jonathan Edwards' grandson, becomes president of Yale University in 1795, and he's like, enough of that, and he starts preaching the gospel. And some one-third of the student body gets converted. Yale University experiences hmm. a massive revival, and uh, a third of the student body professes faith in Christ and is converted. So that's kind of the first wave. So gold star, Timothy Dwight, you made your grandpappy proud. <laughs> Awesome. So then the second wave of the Second Great Awakening was on the American frontier. So when we think of the American frontier, sometimes we think of, you know, Little House on the Prairie, family values, covered wagons, everybody gathered around the family Bible at night, and everybody (laughs) really religious and nice and kind. But life on the American frontier was really not like that in the early 1800s. It was hard, it was dangerous, and it was pretty irreligious. There was a lot of drinking, there was a lot of gambling, there was a lot of fighting, and there were no real churches or denominational presences to speak of at that time. Hmm. Uh, A really interesting memoir by a guy named Wendell Berry. Did you ever read any Wendell Berry? No, I haven't. He is from Kentucky, and he wrote a nonfiction account of um, the people that blazed roads in the Kentucky wilderness during this time. And he talks about for fun what these guys would do at night is they would all drink whiskey and bourbon. They would put hot fire pokers in fire until they would get blazing red hot, and then would put the fires out. And they would have sword fights with these blazing hot fire pokers. So the only nice. thing you could see was like the wow. glowing red of, and this is what these guys would do for fun every night as they're working on the roads in Kentucky. Hmm. <laughs> so sounds, sounds like Drink Kentucky. a lot of whiskey and, yep, and fight with blazing hot fire pokers. Sounds like a good time. Right? America. <laughs> America. Yep. So as you can imagine, not a lot of people thinking about going to church. They're thinking about hunting, trapping, building towns and forts and making a name for themselves and making money. So a lot of people that were denominational leaders were like, man, that's a huge mission field. So there's a guy named James McCready. He was a Scottish Presbyterian from North Carolina. And in 1796, he moved to Logan County, Kentucky. And he brought with him something called a communion season. It was a Scottish Presbyterian practice where in Scotland, Presbyterians would hold these annual week-long events that would have preaching and singing and religious lectures and prayer meetings. And the whole week would culminate in a communion from everybody that would come together and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so... McCready said this would translate really, really well on the American frontier. And so this would get transformed into something called camp meetings. Hmm. And camp meetings started mainly in Kentucky and Tennessee. So this practice of camp meetings started happening. James McCready started preaching camp meetings and holding camp meetings. 
in Greensboro, North Carolina, and Logan County, Kentucky. And uh, he held a camp meeting, and it was attended by a young man by the name of Barton Stone. And Barton Stone attended one of McCready's camp meetings in 1800, and he said, you know what, I am going to do something like this. I'm going to do a revival. I'm going to do a camp meeting at my meeting house in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, the following year in 1801. And so... He conducted a few preparatory revivals and then said, okay, August 6th, 1801, we're going to have a revival. Now, Hmm. before (laughs) this time, you didn't really see that word being used. You didn't hear of this tactic. We're going to have a week-long series of religious services. I mean, you had open-air preaching and things like that, but this was like the first time we saw this practice being used. And so in our last episode, we talked about how in the minds of some of us as Americans, this is what we think of when we hear revivals, right? Yeah. And so this is probably where that started in the early 1800s on the frontier. So August 6th, 1801, Barton Stone says here in Cambridge, Kentucky, we're going to invite every church, every denomination, all these ministers, Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, tell everybody you know. And so... A crowd estimated at anywhere from ten to twenty-five thousand people rolled mm. up to Cane Ridge, Kentucky. Now, to give you a bit of perspective, the largest town in Kentucky was Lexington. There's only about two thousand people. So twenty-five thousand people show up <laughs> for this camp meeting for this week long wow. of religious services, and uh, there's a historian that writes about this. He says, this is what it looked like. He said, the milling crowds of hardened frontier farmers, tobacco-chewing, tough-spoken, notoriously profane, famous for their alcoholic thirst, their scarcely demure wives and large broods of children, the rough clearing, the rows of wagons, (laughs) and crude improvised tents with horses staked out behind, the gesticulating speaker on a rude platform, or simply perhaps a preacher holding holding forth from a fallen tree. At night, when the forest edge was limbed by the flickering light of many campfires, the effect of apparent miracles would be heightened. For men and women accustomed to retiring and rising with the birds, these turbulent nights must have been especially awe-inspiring. And underlying every Hmm. other conditioning circumstance was the immense loneliness of the frontier farmer's normal life and the exhilaration of participating in so large of a social occasion. Under the influence of constant preaching and repeated communion services, the exhilaration of the event produced many conversions, as well as physical signs of ecstasy and transformation. Stone himself described people breaking out in hysterical fits of laughter, convulsed with jerking motions, running uncontrollably about the meeting site, or simply falling down on the spot with a piercing scream, like a log on the floor, earth or mud, and appearing as dead. Hmm. So that's the Cane Ridge Revival. That's pretty wonderful. 25,000 people show up at this tiny little rural place in Kentucky. Thousands, perhaps, are converted. Others are there to take part in, you know, Bonnaroo 1801, right? <laughs> it's just like a big... <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, it's a pretty strange manifestation, though. Laughter, trembling, falling down. Uh, supposedly one was barking at the devil. <laughs> you ever seen that? No, I have not. That sounds very interesting. Yeah. 
So this was the first uh, big, massive revival of the Second Great Awakening. And uh, almost immediately, the Presbyterians are like, we out. Peace. Um, <laughs> but the Baptist and Methodist are like, no, we're in. This is, this is of God. This is a move of God. You can't deny it. There's conversions. So camp meetings started up all across Kentucky, Tennessee, and the frontier. And the effect was the Methodist and the Baptist started replacing Congregationalists and Presbyterians as the largest denominations in the U.S., particularly in the American South. So mm. I don't know what it's like in Alabama, but here in Tennessee— in almost every small Tennessee town you come in, you will see a First Baptist or you will see old historic Baptist churches spotting the entire landscape mm-hmm. of rural areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In most small towns in Alabama, you have uh, like, you know, the main street goes through like a little downtown area and you usually have like a First Baptist church. And then you have a First United Methodist church, sometimes very close to each other right across the street. And uh, mm-hmm. what's really cool about that is like the the architecture is like noticeably different, and the hmm. the Methodist churches are they have a similar architecture to one another. Um, but yeah, that that is very much the case here in Southern Alabama. At least it's um, they're they're the the only game in town, or they were at least for for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. So there's an explosion of Methodist and Baptist because of that. And then the Methodists start saying, wow, we really need to get out on the frontier and we really need to start ministering to people and planting churches. And so one of the things that happens is John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, starts asking for volunteers to go to America. And so these ministers are mostly young men. They don't have much theological training or seminary training. But what they are, they're strong and they're willing to work hard. And so they go to the frontier. They're called circuit riders. They hop on a horse and they ride a circuit. So they'll go and they'll preach at this Methodist church for a week. And then they're like, all right, we'll see you in three months. And then they ride 25 miles to the other town and they stay there and they preach there two nights. All right, we'll see you in a few months. And then they ride another 50 miles to another town and another 50 miles. And they were notoriously consistent and notoriously devout to get to their preaching assignment and to get to these churches. Hmm. Um, There's an old saying that when it was pouring rain, people would say there's nothing out today but crows and Methodists because the weather's so bad (laughs) that the only people that would ever go to church right now are the Methodists and their circuit riding preachers that would come. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot of Methodists, a lot of Methodist churches. But really, kind of what you see is this the shift in the Second Great Awakening of kind of lowering the bar in ordaining ministers. So, hmm. like, the clerics of the colonies and the clerics of early U.S. life were very intellectual, were trained, were seminarians. But in the Second Great Awakening, it was kind of just whoever was willing to go to the frontier. Like, can you ride a horse? Hmm. Do you know some of the Bible? Yep. All right. So what started happening is in rural areas, you started kind of seeing an anti-intellectualism and a deeply Hmm. embedded religious presence 
in rural areas along the American frontier. And you still see that today. Okay, so that was the first or the second Great Awakening in the American frontier. Kind of the third wave and last wave of the second Great Awakening is probably the most controversial. And that was by a preacher by the name of Charles Finney. And Charles Finney is the most prominent preacher of the Second Great Awakening. He's often called the father of American revivalism. If we don't have Finney, we don't have such a thing as a revival preacher or revival meetings. Hmm. So he kind of took this idea of the camp meeting and put it on steroids. Have you heard of Charles Finney? Are you familiar with yeah. him at all? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not super familiar with him. I definitely have heard of him. Yeah, he's a... Um, I don't know. He's a bit of a controversial figure. Uh, Calvinists and reform types hate his guts. That's something I found researching him. Hmm. Listened to a series of lectures about him, and this guy was a pretty hardcore reform guy, and he straight up said this dude's a heretic. Uh, Pentecostal and Wesleyan types think he's a man of God that God used in a mighty way. So... He's probably somewhere in the middle. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. um, so he's super interesting. He ministered mainly in upstate New York, what was referred to as the burnt over district, because there were so many religious revivals in that area. People called it the burned over district because the fires of revival had burned through them. Um, he was a staunch anti-Calvinist. So the first Great Awakening was very Calvinistic in its soteriology. Finney was not. Finney urged his listeners to accept Christ openly and publicly. He was not, you know, one to say, hey, God's chosen you, and you pay attention to the work of the Spirit on your heart. It was very much, no, you, you're the one that chooses Christ. Um, his style was very different. He started his career as a lawyer before he was converted. So his, his sermons were a lot like a lawyer's argument. But what really is uh, the legacy of Charles Finney is we didn't have anything like an altar call until Charles Finney showed up. Hmm. He was known for a ministry tactic called New Measures, which was him trying out these different ministry techniques to try to psychologically break down or manipulate the hearer into responding and kind of just said, Hey, listen, if it works and people are led to faith in Christ, then we're going to keep doing it. Hmm. And so part of what he would do was very theatrical extemporaneous preaching. So just kind of making it up on the spot. He didn't manuscript like other guys did. He would use what Mm -hmm. was considered coarse language at the time. He would attack other ministers by name. He would call out congregants by name. He had a section in the front of his... <laughs> yeah, isn't that great? Wouldn't you love to be in that service? Yeah. He would have a section called the Anxious Bench, and it was just set up near the front of the, the meeting house. So if you were hearing the message and you got anxious under the weight of your sin, you were invited to come to the front and sit in the Anxious Bench so you could be right up near the front when the altar call started. Um, he would held these long, drawn-out meetings to try to really break down the hearer psychologically. Basically, by any means necessary, he would do whatever he could to break somebody down so they received Christ. Interesting. 
Yeah. So his quote was, it's not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in any sense. A revival is the philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. So, whereas Edwards in the First Great Awakening said, it's a surprising sovereign work of God. Finney's like, nope, not a surprising sovereign work of God. It is us doing what we're supposed to do, planning these revival services, using the new measures, using altar calls. That's what gets people saved. So, um, I just... I was looking up a thing about the mourner's bench. It says the mourner's bench, also known, known as the mercy seat or anxious bench in Methodist or other evangelical Christian churches, is a bench located in the front of the front of the chancel. The practice was instituted by John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist church, and individuals kneel at the mourner's bench to express the, their new birth. And some of those who have already had the new birth go there to receive entire sanctification, while others, especially backsliders, use the anxious anxious bench to confess their sins and receive forgiveness in order to continue the process of sanctification. I've never heard of that. That's, Hmm. that's really interesting. Yeah. So I guess it was, I didn't know that. I guess it was already been used in Methodist camp meetings, but that was kind of a a hallmark of Finney's revivals. He always had one. Hmm. Um, So obviously he was, he was the subject of a lot of criticism. Uh, People can, really can uh really condemned him for encouraging false conversions and kind of psychologically manipulating people that hundreds mm-hmm. would be carried through the process of an anxious bench conversion kind of leading him through the sinner's prayer if you will um you know whereas i think in the first great awakening it was kind of like if you didn't have the fruit of religious affections completely changed and stirred, you didn't have a conversion. In Finney's mm. revival services, it was very much, no, you responded to the altar call and you went to the anxious bench and you kind of did that. And that was kind of the evidence of your conversion. Make sense? Yeah. 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 But mm. he kind of, he was a, so theologically there was, there was something going on with him. He believed that, we didn't really we didn't really have original sin we kind of had um yeah we're sinners but really our big deal is just our kind of personal reluctance and indifference so the goal of the preacher is to kind of overcome the psychological inhibitions that someone has and persuade that person's will by kind of piling on enticements or it's kind of the orthodox mm-hmm. view of our depravity is we're so depraved that we cannot come to Christ unless the spirit draws us. Hmm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. It's interesting how, uh, these denominations have changed over time. You know, you think of the Methodists in this era are so fired up and, Mm -hmm. you know, they have these things like the ancients, anxious bench. I don't know. It's so hard to say. Um, and then you have, you know, like all these different manifestations of the spirit and being slain in the spirit. But then you look at the Methodist church now, it's like anything but all that. It's, it's really interesting. It's really changed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So second great awakening was probably a lot more nuanced and difficult to understand and also difficult Mm -hmm. to say, Hmm, this was definitely move of God, or this was kind of more of a you know, I think it was one critic of the Second Great Awakening um, 
a writer by the name of Nettleton who criticized Charles Finney called it <clears throat> machinery evangelism. So basically mm. let's create a program called revival services. Let's travel this revival circuit. Let's psychologically manipulate people. And, you know, Finney's response was, Hey, it works. People come to faith in Christ. So you can't, you can't criticize me. Right. Mm. And I think you can look at American evangelicalism and see that thread going through things like the power team, right? (laughs) (laughs) People that rip phone books in half and then invite people to come Mm -hmm. up for an altar call or Christian illusionists or Christian rock concerts with an altar call, right? I mean, you can kind of see that same idea, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. that same justification for almost like attractional evangelism being justified. And it's interesting to think that perhaps started with Finney. So, um, hmm. yeah, really interesting. But results of this Second Great Awakening, first is there were actual conversions. So a lot of them, probably a lot of false conversions too. But again, we don't know. There's wheat and tares. Jesus is the one that decides that. We don't. Um, a lot of young people were converted. A lot of women were converted. Uh, another result is this was the, this was the awakening where a lot of societies of what we would call parachurch organizations were founded. So the Salvation Army came out of the Second Great Awakening. Mm. The American Bible Society came out of that. Uh, one result was kind of the dumbing down of American Christianity. So a rejection of formal training and ordination for clergy. Um, kind of an anti-intellectualism, specifically in the American frontier. And you kind of see that even today, right? Of I don't need nothing but the Bible. You know, I don't need no seminary training. I don't need no Bible college. <laughs> um, the, revi- the, the rise of kind of the, the format of revivalism and revival services, camp meetings and planned revival services are a direct result of the Second Great Awakening. Before then, people would have church services. But saying we're going to have a revival, yeah, that that was definitely a result of this. This was a, um, yeah, direct result of that. Um, the spread of Arminian theology, so altar calls, you come up, you respond. It wasn't very much like, hey, respond to what God's doing in you, but you respond. You're the one that saves yourself, essentially. And again, that's that's hyper-Arminian. I'm not saying anybody that's Arminian thinks that, but that's very much how Charles Finney felt. Um, so the Christianization of America, especially in rural areas, I'm going through this quite quick because we're almost out of time. Uh, two things really interesting, and then we'll be done. First is there was a creation of a lot of cults because of the Second Great Awakening. The Latter-day Saints and the Seventh-day Adventists really started in the Burnover District of New York. And I think part of that is because where these revivals would come through, normative Christianity was seen as boring by a lot of people. So they got attracted to these groups that said, hey, we've got a special revelation from God. And people were like, oh my gosh, that seems really attractive to me. And so they would kind of flock to the Joseph Smiths and to um, <clears throat> the people of the uh, Seventh-day Adventists. 
And then there's a lot of new denominations that came out of that, particularly the Disciples of Christ that led to the Church of Christ and the Christian Church. So, super interesting stuff. It is, yeah. Yeah, and I would say yeah. may, maybe one of the more historic uh, effects of the Second Great Awakening would a lot of a lot of historians um, attribute the abolitionist movement to the Second Great Great, great Awakening. Um, Absolutely, and the the rise of people like Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison, um, John Brown, yep. who had you know just these Sojourner Truth, like some of these great. American abolitionists who, because of this increase of biblical literacy and um, moral awareness and consciousness of of what Scripture really says about, um, you know, people being made in God's image, et cetera, um, they, they, they made a big push, concerted effort to um, to lobby for the ending of slavery in America, which was huge. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's, that's perhaps the biggest effect of the Second Great Awakening, and that bears mentioning. Mm-hmm. So, what do you make of the controversies of it, though? Like the practices of Charles Finney and stuff like that. What do you? How do you make sense of all that? It's hard to it's hard to know because I mean, it's I, I can't really form an opinion and, and make a, a definitive uh, opinion on it because it's like I, see, I I can see just you know looking back at different media outlets and everything just over the pandemic, for instance, or or Donald Trump's presidency, and you could see how many different. Uh, disagreements there were on different issues and it's just this big you know convoluted i think it's i think it's probably very complex and it's something that um, we can only see the residual ripples of that and observe those now in the here and now and i can say that those are by and large they seem to be good ripples they seem to be like an increase in biblical literacy and like i said the abolition of slavery um and and some others you know and and um I would say the promotion of like personal um, uh, salvation experiences, that's probably really good. Sure. Good effect. Sure, sure. So I can look at the effects of the second great awakening and say that those are all good. Um, I don't see a lot of negative effects, um, but sure. I'm, I'm, I'm certain there are people that exploited this religious movement and took advantage of it for personal gain. Like in any sure. big religious movement, those exist. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I don't think I knew as much about the Second Great Awakening, but in studying it, it's so hard to say. Um, oh my gosh, everything that happened was just one hundred percent God, and oh my gosh, everything that happened mm-hmm. was just one hundred percent psychological manipulation by greedy people or whatever, right? Because the truth is, mm-hmm. is like imperfect people are the vessels that God uses to do His perfect work, mm-hmm. and where there's genuine moves of God and genuine moves of the Spirit, there's always. Like Edwards wrote, the the counterfeits of the enemy, you know, mm-hmm. and so only after mm-hmm. the luxury of almost two hundred years, we can look back and go, okay, <laughs> God, God was moving. God did save some. God did work. God, and some historians say that um, the Second Great Awakening kind of preserved the Christian culture in the U.S. by a hundred years. So, like, Europe started mm-hmm. going super liberal, and. Mm-hmm the U S kind of got preserved in terms of the religious fervor because of the second great awakenings, which is really interesting to think through. So. Well, one of the things I say about history is like history is like a thousand piece puzzle, you know, that you got a box, Mm -hmm. right. And we, we lose a piece of that puzzle every decade. Interesting. So if you think about it, like we're looking back 200 years, we've lost that many pieces of this thing. And it's like, 
that just kind of fades over time, unfortunately, when we look at historical events. So we're at a disadvantage. But like I said, when you can observe the here and the now and the things, the effects of it, that we're kind of better off by doing that than looking back and criticizing. But, um, sure. but yeah, don't we have one more? We have one more installment in this revival series. I think we right? got two more, actually. We're going to look more. at the Jesus people cool. and Azusa Street next time. And then after that, we're going to look at mm. Brownsville, Toronto, and Lakeland. So, yeah. That's cool. Well, I hope everybody's learned some things about church history. I know yeah. I have already. This has been fun. This has been real fun. So, <laughs> all right, my friend. Hope you get some rest. These long form podcasts are not for sissies. We're a bunch mm-hmm. of old farts, man. Staying up late past nine o'clock yeah. is it's a lot, you know? Yeah, I'm going to have some sweet dreams about Charles Finney tonight. Or was it, um, who was the cross-eyed <laughs> George guy? Whitfield's cross-eyes, yeah. George, yeah, he's going to creep right, up on me in my sleep and... <laughs> Start wailing and crying out in your sleep. What must I do to be saved? <laughs> Stacy? just to kick you. So, anyway. Yeah. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening. Any questions, concerns, or uh, things to add to this conversation, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Beers and Bible Podcast at gmail.com. See you next time. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.